0: This week, I'm excited, we are starting a new series called Advent in Narnia, where we are going to take the four weeks of Advent and we're going to explore themes drawn from scripture, drawn from the season of Advent, and drawn from C.S. Lewis' famous children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you have not read the book, if you're not familiar with it, you can join us on December 22nd for a book club. Um, You can borrow the book. You can check it out at the library, um, and you can come and talk about it with us at the Moore House on Saturday the 22nd. And if you're a really big nerd, like me, and you want to dig a little bit deeper this season, you can also check out the book by Heidi Haverkamp called Advent in Narnia. This series, we're going to look into a deep mystery, the mystery of the arrival of God in Christ. But well, what I love about Advent is that it slows us down. It forces us to delay the gratification of Christmas time and to spend time preparing our hearts. We don't get to do that enough in the modern West because ever more and more we are conditioned to rush to the victorious moment, to rush to the celebration. But Advent is an invitation to contemplative reflection. So here's something I've uh, become intensely convicted about in recent years, that as as I've become more and more uh, upset, sometimes outraged, sometimes incensed about injustice, um, I have become convicted that if I'm going to stay the course, and if I'm going to be consistent about fighting against injustice of all kinds without burning out, I'm going to have to maintain a contemplative lifestyle, that if we're going to be prophetic resistance, if we're going to be members of a a community that revolts against the powers, we need to have a contemplative life together. Here's how Brian Zahn put it. Before you can become an activist, you must first become a contemplative, otherwise you'll just be a reactivist. And reactivists merely recycle anger and keep the world an angry place. Jesus was a contemplative activist, but never a reactivist. And that's why I think we must resist approaching Advent merely as a countdown to Christmas. Advent itself is an important season. Above all, I think we should enter into this season as one enters into a mystery, not as one enters into a known entity. Advent is special because it's a season in which we reflect upon the impossible. God, the God of the universe, becoming a human being. So that mystery can never be fully exhausted. So as we enter into this season, let's enter it with humility. Enter it with wonder. In this message... I'd like to draw our attention to Narnia the place, and entering into a different world, an enchanted world where impossible-seeming things become possible, and also a world that is itself in the grip of a struggle between good and evil, between hope and despair. But before we read scripture, will you join me in, in praying for the Spirit's illumination? Holy Spirit, we pray this morning that as we look into a mystery, that we would see with your eyes, that you would give us spirit sight, open the eyes of our hearts and our minds to see what is beyond our human capacity to see. Open our hearts and our minds to see what you would have us see. How would you have us apply this message to our own lives, to our own practices, to our own rhythms of life? our own everyday struggles between hope and despair. Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts, we pray this morning, as we look into the scriptures, as we talk about this wonderful world, this enchanted world, and as we talk about the hard things. I pray that you would give us insight by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. So Advent is about being formed by the gospel story, and believe it or not, Not everybody has agreed upon what is the gospel. So I like what Scott McKnight said. Scott McKnight was sitting at his desk pondering uh, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he naively asked himself a question. And the question was, why did the early Christians call these books the gospel? And as he sat there at his desk, a college professor teaching the New Testament he started to answer the question himself. He said, well, maybe they are the gospel. Well, yes, they are the gospel. Yes, the gospels are the gospel. (laughs) Seemed obvious, but the apostolic gospel, he writes, the tradition the apostles passed along can be found in the gospel of Matthew and of Mark and of Luke and of John. It may seem patently obvious, but it's not. It's not to most people, at least, but the early church called the books the Gospels because they are the Gospel. The Gospel is the story of Jesus, and we have the Gospel preserved in the New Testament from four perspectives. We call them Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one of these stories, at least three of them, begins before Jesus was born. And, uh, of course, Matthew and Luke give us the infancy narratives, right? It tells the story of Mary and Joseph and their journey to Egypt and the whole birth narrative. But John's gospel gives us a 10,000 foot view. I really love how John zooms out and gives us a theological perspective on the birth of Jesus. Here's how John puts it, starting in chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here's the the climax of the passage. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son, who came from the father full of grace and truth. One of the reasons why I love this theological perspective of the gospel is that it feels like John is really worshiping as he's writing this. These feel like very personal reflections of a person who's been personally transformed by the subject about whom he's writing. John says, we have seen his glory, like someone who's met Jesus in the flesh. He says, he talks about Jesus as the light of God, God's logos, God's word, the one through whom all things have made. John is worshiping that light, declaring the brilliance and beauty of that light. John begins his account like someone who has encountered a mystery. Jesus has opened up an entirely new world of possibilities for John and has extended mercy that has cut through the darkness. So it's a bit like John has walked through a door into a new world. And John has entered into this world through the person of Jesus. And on the other side, John has to rethink and reinterpret everything in his life. He has to think about everything from another perspective. In fact, Jesus says something almost exactly like that about himself. He says in John's Gospel, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved, and will go in and out and find pasture. So this is where the brilliance of C.S. Lewis' The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe comes in. Because... Of course, Lewis creates a whole new world through the wardrobe, a world where impossible seeming things become possible, a world of knights and castles, of talking animals and magic. So here's a scene that I'm going to show you from the Disney adaptation of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And this is the famous scene where Lucy travels through the wardrobe into Narnia. So let's see if we can hear the audio. Can we hear the audio? Yep, there it is. I just realized something. Maybe that's not so magical to Minnesotans. <laughs> Minnesotans see that and they're like, "Oh, got to get the ice, got to get the, uh, the salt out and shovel the driveway." And <laughs> everyone else is like, "Oh, it's so magical." Okay, maybe not. But I think that Disney's adaptation of the book does a good job of capturing this moment in the film. Uh, Lucy stumbles into this, this new world, and she can't go back to her regular life like like she was living it, right? She can't just pretend like that didn't happen. It was mind-blowing. It was a totally different world. And um, uh, I think this appeals to me for a lot of reasons, but one of the main reasons why that scene really gets to me is because it makes me think of when I was 16 and I became a Christian. When I became a Christian, it, it was a lot like that. It was a lot like... I had stumbled through the wardrobe into a new world um, because I was coming out of a really rough childhood, a rough 16 years basically, uh, where I'd, I'd endured a lot of struggles. I grew up the only child of a mentally ill single mom, and I endured a lot of abuse and neglect, and I lived in a very rough neighborhood, so I experienced a lot of violence, became gang involved, and so I endured all of this led up to this moment when I was almost 17, and I discovered or encountered the living God through through Jesus in a community, and when I was almost 17, I had this powerful encounter with God, and I could just, I couldn't go back to my life as it was. I could never be the same. It was like I had stumbled through the wardrobe, and I didn't meet, you know, talking animals, of course, and I didn't stumble into a land of castles and knights, but I did meet impossible seeming things. I did encounter what seemed impossible to me. One of those things was I met young people my age who did not have the same values as other young people their age. I met young people who could not care less about becoming successful by worldly standards. I met young people who, Didn't care about making money, two and a half kids, a picket fence in the suburbs. They wanted to spend their lives serving others. Some of them wanted to travel overseas. Some of them wanted to move into the most under-resourced neighborhoods in the country. They wanted to give their lives away. They wanted to pour themselves out for others. And that just blew my mind. Like, Who does that? What has to happen to someone for them to have that kind of perspective on their lives? I met my pastor, Terry Austria, and he was on track to be a lawyer. He was going to go to law school when he had an encounter with Christ. And he gave up on law school. And instead, he stuck around at his alma mater and started investing in the lives of college students. He was intelligent, charismatic, well-read, driven, but He decided that the best use of his life was to serve other people, to give his life away. And one of the weirdest things about these Jesus people that I encountered was their innocence. They really had this childlike wonder about the world. They loved to pray. They delighted in worship. They loved to sing to God. They loved to read the scriptures. They loved to l- learn anything they could about Jesus. And as I was reflecting on this this past week, uh, I have a confession. I I just burst into tears spontaneously. And it was because I was remembering that feeling that I had when I was their age, when I was that, when I was that age. When I was that age, I delighted in worship. I I lost hours of the day praying. Just being in God's presence was what I was longing for. And I had this sense of childlike wonder, like I had stumbled through the wardrobe into into an impossible world. And it was like the hardness of my heart had melted. Scripture says that God will take out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. And I felt that. I really felt like my heart was tender again. Jesus says, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I think too many people read that as talking about the afterlife, to talking about going to heaven when you die. But Jesus is not talking about that at all. He's talking about experiencing life here and now with that sense of innocence, with that sense of awe and wonder. And mystery. An enchanted world. A world where you could delight in the presence of God. Where you could lose hours of the day praying and worshiping God. Before I surrendered my life to Jesus, I can't remember crying. Like, I think I stopped crying when I was like eight. And after I came to faith, I couldn't stop crying. I cried all the time. It was like the floodgates opened. And if I was singing on Sunday morning, I was crying. If I was praying, I was crying. It was like, God had given me back that sense of, of beauty and awe and being touched by God. <laughs> Heidi Haberkamp, the author of Advent and Narnia, she says something similar to this. She says, too often Christianity may seem to be a known quantity. We can take, it, take its radical values for granted and see Jesus as cliché. Lewis, by placing Christianity in another world, makes it unfamiliar again. He gives us a chance to feel a newfound sense of wonder at the depth of God's love, the power of Christ's grace, and the totality of his sacrifice, and the wonder of a world infused by the Holy Spirit. We can all use a spiritual wake-up call, whether we aren't sure Christianity can mean anything to us or whether it means everything. Entering Narnia means becoming a little bit foolish, as St. Paul would put it. Reading children's literature might be embarrassing for adults or teenagers, but it could be a deep source of wisdom. As Lewis once wrote, when I was 10, I read fairy tales in secret, And would have been ashamed if I had been found doing so. Now that I'm 50, I read them openly. Before I came to Christ, I, I don't remember reading a single book. This is true. Cover to cover. I think I read just enough to write the book report or, you know, talk about it in front of the class. I just skimmed books. I don't remember ever consuming books until I became a Christian. And after I came to Christ, I began to devour books and ironically some of the first books I ever read were by C.S. Lewis. I read Mere Christianity, I read The Chronicles of Narnia, The Problem of Pain Miracles and the Screwtape Letters and I read about the history of philosophy and all this stuff I read as much as I could get my hands on because suddenly there was a hunger inside me to learn about God I wanted to explore this new world the the new Narnia that was open to me so Here's what I have to ask you this morning. As we enter into this Advent season, where are you at right now in your relationship with God? Could you use a spiritual wake-up call? Could you use that gift of seeing Christianity, seeing your faith as a whole new world opened up to you? That's possibly a gift. Do you delight in God's presence? Do you long to learn from God? Or have the cares of life grown up like weeds? Remember that parable of the the sower? Sometimes the weeds, the cares of this life grow up and choke the seed that is the word of God. One of the beautiful things about Advent is that it's a new beginning. It's a new year. This is the beginning of the Christian year. So in observing Advent, we can be bring ourselves once again to God. And we can have a new encounter with God and maybe restore some of that innocence, some of that wonder, some of that awe that we used to have. One of the reasons that I think that we all fall in love with Lucy Pevensey of the Pevensey children is because she never loses that sense of childlike wonder throughout the the Chronicles of Narnia. She's always the one that believes in Aslan, who trusts Aslan, Even when her siblings don't, and she's a picture of faithfulness. Yeah, she makes mistakes, but she continues to delight in Aslan's presence. Even when she's under threat, even when she's scared, even when she's betrayed, she continues to trust Aslan. So the Narnia that that Lucy enters is not heaven. It's not. It's not the end of days and the new creation. The Narnia that Lucy enters is a world that is under threat. It's a world where she feels like she could be in danger. There's a character in Narnia called the White Witch. And in chapter one of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Lucy asks about her. Who is this White Witch, she asks. And the answer comes from Tumnus. Why, she is the one who's got all Narnia under her thumb. It's she who makes it always winter always winter, and never Christmas. Think of that. And Lucy says, how awful. (laughs) Lucy enters an enchanted world, but she also becomes aware that this new world is enchanted by a hopeful presence of Aslan and enchanted by the threatening presence of the White Witch, who wars against Aslan. And Lucy finds herself caught in the middle of this battle. So in the second scene, we're gonna hear about this tension between uh Hope in Aslan and the threat of the white witch. So, one more scene. Then it's to the witch's house. And you know what I saw? There's few that come from any guys that come out of me. But uh it's a What's a home? Oh, yeah, there's a white bit more low. is on the roof. Who's Asma? he very Well, he's only the king of the whole wood. The top geezer. The real king of Narnia. He's been away for a long while. But he's just come back and he's waiting for you near the stone tables. He's waiting for us? You're blooming, jokey! They don't even know about the prophecy. Well, then. Look. Aslan's return. Thomas arrest. The secret police. It's all happening because of you. You're blaming us. No, not blaming. I'm thanking you. There's a prophecy. When Adam's flesh and Adam's bone sits at care Parabell and Throne, the evil time will be over and done. You know, that doesn't really matter. I'm not done, you're kind of missing the point. It has long been foretold. That two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve will defeat the White Witch and restore peace to Narnia. And do you think we're the ones? Well, you be, because that's when somebody freed out your army. Our army? Mum sent us away so we wouldn't get caught up in a war. I think you made a mistake. We're not heroes. We're from Finchley. Thank you for your hospitality. We really have to go. No, you can't just leave. He's right. We have to help Mr. Dumbness. It's out of our hands. I'm sorry. There's time for us for getting home. So there's a tension in Narnia between hope and threat. Narnia is under the control of the white witch who calls herself the Queen but the rightful king has arrived and is on the move. This is where we find ourselves in Advent, facing a similar tension. We just finished our series on Ephesians, and Paul writes in Ephesians that there's an enemy who he calls the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is at work in those who are disobedient. We talked about this last week when we were talking about spiritual warfare in chapter 6. There is an unseen realm was home to malevolent personal forces that war against God. And Advent helps us to see the world like it is Narnia, caught between the curse and the promise. Those, there's those in the world today who call themselves rulers. There are those in the world today that are powerful by worldly standards. They exert power over people, over the vulnerable, over the poor, and they think that they are running the show. But we know that there is a rightful king of the world who has come in the form of the poor, who has come as a Palestinian child to an unwed mother, forced to flee her homeland because of violent threats and seek asylum in an unhospitable place. The rightful king of the world has revealed himself not in the powerful, not in the wealthy, not in the beautiful, but as one who was despised and rejected a man of sorrows, someone acquainted with suffering. Advent calls you and me into that identity with him. It calls us to be people in exile, with those who await liberation, those who experience injustice. The church is called to find our rightful place in that manger, beside that manger, in that cave, surrounded by smelly barnyard animals. This week I was reflecting on this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, of course, was martyred under the Nazi regime in Germany. He wrote, Who among us will celebrate Christmas correctly? Whoever finally lays down all power, all honor, all reputation, all vanity, all arrogance, all individualism beside the manger. Whoever remains lowly and lets God alone be high, whoever looks at the child in the manger and sees the glory of God precisely in his lowliness. So as we enter this Advent season, where are we looking for the glory of God? Are we consumed with thoughts about material possessions, about presents and things like that? The the consumer calendar, are we marking time by that? Or have our hearts been tuned to see the king of glory in the face of Jesus? In observing Advent, we journey with God's people towards Christmas with expectation but also with lament with hope and with sorrow. So let me encourage you this week to find a contemplative practice, something that will help you make sense of your life through a different filter, through a different perspective. If you're a writer, write an Advent reflection. If you're an artist, express yourself artistically. If you're a parent, create an Advent practice for your children, a reflective activity. In some thoughtful way, I encourage you to enter this season and make meaning of this time, this waiting time, this in-between time, this time when we are seeing the world from a different perspective. I, therefore, I want to invite you into a holy Advent season by self-examination, by repentance, by practices of waiting, of simplicity and solitude, by reflection and contemplation on hope and on Jesus, and to make a right beginning of this new Christian year, to mark our struggle with despair and our hope in the Lord. May we enter this season with childlike wonder, and may we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus and every refugee family. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for Advent. I'm thankful for a time to slow down, a time to make rightful meaning of our lives, to reflect on this world, how it's torn between hope and despair, between the rightful king who has come and is reigning now, but also through the the ruler of the kingdom of the air, who's at work among those who are disobedient. Lord, we know that there are people today who are suffering, who are longing for liberation, who are longing for safe asylum. And we enter into the season asking that you would attune our hearts to your heart, O God. Give us uh, the empathy that we need to see ourselves in the plight of those uh, who are struggling this season, God. And I pray that we would recapture that childlike wonder, that we would see the world through your eyes, that we would see the world of possibilities, a world where we can Delight in your presence. That we can give our lives away. Spend our lives serving others. And fully enter into your joy in doing so. I pray that Roots Covenant Church will be that kind of community. That we delight in your presence. That we long to learn from you. That we long to serve others. And be a witness to the beauty of your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.